Is this on? Okay, okay. Sounds like it is. Uh, Good evening. Thank you for having me. It's always an honor to uh, be able to come and uh, bring God's Word to you. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, open up to chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel. Uh, We'll be in verses 1 through 8 this evening. Luke 20, 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find uh, our passage on page 879 in the Pew Bibles. So what we're reading tonight, it comes at the beginning of a series of confrontations that happen between Jesus and his religious rivals, and that goes on for the entirety of chapter 20. Uh, they're looking, the, the, they being the religious rivals, are looking for a way to trap Jesus, to, to make him trip up in something he says so that they can present a case against him in order to have him executed. They start their entrapment plan with a question related to the authority of Jesus. That's where we're going to be this evening. Uh, and then after that, they following our passage, they try to get him to say something uh, treasonous against the Roman government. And then after that, they bring up some sort of uh, hot-button uh, theological debate that's happening at the time. It would be uh, like a the sort of grenade that's bringing up politics at Thanksgiving today. Um, All of this, chapter 20, all of this, uh, this, these encounters, they occur, they occur right after uh, the uh, Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers in chapter 19. He boots them out of the temple courtyard and then the next thing that happens is our passage. Uh, The Jewish elite in Jerusalem who They are represented in our chapter and in chapter 20 as a whole as uh, essentially the major social elements of the Sanhedrin. They come to challenge Jesus directly. So with with all of this context in mind, let us now turn to God's holy, perfect, and eternal word. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty God, who caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear your word clearly to read, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may embrace and ever hold to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are uh, certain things in life, I'm sure you, uh, you've encountered them, that uh, when, when you come across them, you just have to have a, this, uh, a visceral reaction. 
You either love them or you hate them. There's, there's no uh, fence sitting allowed, no gray areas with these things. Uh, th there's camps that develop on either side. You have the pros and the antis. And then, you know, occasionally there's a few weirdos in the middle and they feel ostracization from both sides. Um, but I, I'm sure there's a bunch of examples running through your mind, but uh, some of the ones that come to me are uh, pineapple on pizza, which uh, caused some crazy internet debate recently uh, and seemed to have caused levels of familial division not seen since the Civil War. Um, there's also the music of bands like U2 or Dave Matthews Band or uh, even the entire, entire genre of hip-hop. Um, you have Russian literature, which I'm comfortable enough to admit that I'm in the hate camp for. Um, in our passage, we have uh, another battle being waged over a, a divisive issue. This time in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. The claims that he is making about himself up to this point in the gospel narrative and the actions that have accompanied his teachings uh, as, as a form to uh, validate his teachings, these things demand a love or hate response. Either this person is who he says he is, or he is deranged and dangerous, and he must be opposed. Uh, however, the response that we see in this passage the, from the, the temple officials is neither. They plant themselves on the fence by saying, we don't know. Uh, we're going to delve into this idea by going through the text in, in two different ways. First, I'll, I'll give a, a high-level, high uh, bird's-eye view of the events just so we have a, a mental map of the, uh, of the text. And then... We'll go through the text again, this time looking at three specific themes. Number one, the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, something that we've uh, tread in the, the morning services the past two weeks. Um, so we're just going to be hitting that again. Uh, number two, what the, that relationship says about Jesus' right to reign. And finally, number three, the, the response that we must take in light of these facts presented. So, if you like fancy alliteratives, you can think right relation, rightful reign, righteous response. So, the, the bird's eye view first. Uh, we can think of this passage as being divided into <clears throat> three major sections. First, there is the inciting incident. Jesus is fresh off of clearing the temple at just the other day, and he's now back in the temple teaching and preaching the gospel. Seeing this, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these major figures in Jewish temple worship, uh, they get upset and they set to taking Jesus down a peg in front of this crowd, hoping to get him to slip up with one of their tough questions. The second segment of the text is the content of the disputation itself. Jesus says, let me answer your question with a question of my own. This causes the temple officials to have to huddle up to debate the authority of John the Baptist and, by extension, Jesus. Uh, they do that amongst themselves. They eventually able to come up with an answer, which, uh, or unable to come up with an answer, rather, which must have been pretty disheartening. They started this, this whole thing to 
uh, with, with a gotcha question, and then they end up being the ones who get got. Uh, the symphony's final movement is when Jesus refuses to answer the ones who cannot answer him. Their lack of an answer is enough of an answer for him. Jesus wins this first round in a series of back and forth that will continue through the end of the chapter. So that's the, that's the high-level high view. Now we'll dive into the three themes. Uh, we can use these sections as an orientating device. So there's the inciting incident between uh, verses 1 and 2. There's the disputation proper, verses 3 through 7. And then finally, Jesus' refusal to provide further response in uh, verse 8. So we'll mostly be in that second section, but it, it's, it's helpful to have the context on either side in mind. So the first theme, re- relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. So obviously the question that Jesus asks in response to the question that was posed to him is the one that directly connects himself to John. John Jesus is the one who brings John into the conversation. He's the one who's making the connection. So verse 2 through 4 again. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? The temple officials ask, who authorizes you to do these things? Who do you think you are that you can march into the city like some king? That you can kick people out of the temple and then come in here and teach like you are some sort of definitive source. Uh, on that last one, I, I want to zoom out a little bit and, and, and talk about the, the way that Christ teaches through the Gospels. It's unlike any other standard uh, like rabbinical teaching method of the day. One commentator, he, he points out that the act of teaching in those days was typically done through a tedious chain of authority citations. You would... Uh, say, I think this point, and, and here are the other guys who agree with me. He would uh, basically say, Rabbi such and such says this, but Rabbi such and such says this in response, but Rabbi such and such also permits this. Jesus did not teach like that. If you read his sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you don't see any of that. There's, there's no, you know, rabbi name dropping or anything. Uh, and the reason he did that is simply because he himself was the authority. There's, there's nobody with more authority for him to appeal to. So Jesus responds to the question, who do you think you are? By pointing back to another teacher, by bringing this other teacher into the conversation. And this other teacher is another person who taught as, with, uh, he, as if he had divine appointment so my authority, Jesus says, basically is from the same place as this other teacher. We are a package deal. So rather than dismissing the question, as you might think is happening on first glance, Jesus is raising the stakes. He's putting the credentials of another teacher, one that the, these same people didn't like. He's putting his credentials under the proverbial microscope. Uh, this connection between John the Baptist and Jesus is actually a pretty significant theme in Luke's gospel. Obviously, it's a significant theme in the gospels, but, but Luke specifically really hammers this, uh, this, this connection. 
Luke is the only one who mentions that Jesus and John are related. Um, it's only in Luke's gospel that we uh, get the story of, of John leaping in, in his mother's womb when the pregnant Mary comes by. Uh, so from birth, really, it, it, Luke is, is hammering this point that, that Jesus and John go together. As we talked about this morning, we don't know, you know how, how well they knew each other through childhood, uh, but at least uh, on a narrative level, Luke is really highlighting that. And, and then he, he brings it back again in chapter 3, 7, 16. So it's over and over again we see this connection between Jesus and John in Luke's gospel. So you cannot help but read, when, when reading Luke, notice how intrinsically linked they are to each other. Without Christ, there is no one to whom John points. Similarly, John's message about Jesus as Messiah in chapter 3, uh, that there's a better baptism coming, that has no reference if Christ is not who he says he is. If there is not a Christ who has come, there is not one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. The better baptism that John's baptism was pointing towards has not come. If Jesus is not who John says he was, both of them are failures. John the Baptist must be a prophet from heaven if his predictions from the greater one coming are correct, which Luke is sure to point out and clarify in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, um, that John is a prophet when he says, the, Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. The word of God came to John. John's message has a divine source and came directly to him. It's the same formula that we see for Old Testament prophets. So there's no question of John's divine appointment as the prophetic forerunner. And what is the purpose of John's appointment, you might ask? I know we've sort of tread this ground, so I hope I'm not just sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but it's important to highlight that his pivotal role is not arbitrary. John is not just a convenient preacher who just happened to be there at the right time and happened to be faithful and happened to know that, that uh, Christ was coming. No, his task is intricately woven into the fabric of Old Testament prophecy. He's designated as the forerunner. His arrival heralds the culmination of divine promises. The fulfillment of the prophetic anticipation that's found in books like Malachi and Isaiah. Christ himself dubs John as the greatest among the old order of prophets. I mean, that should really point our attention to the unparalleled importance of his mission. If Jesus says he's the most important, I think we should listen to him. Um, and, and that mission is, is a, a divine appointment to prepare the hearts of Israel for the advent of the long-awaited Messiah. Consequently, John's bold teachings rooted in the sacred scriptures and the promptings of the Holy Spirit it, it leaves no room for Israel to plead ignorance or feign unawareness when Christ, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, when he steps into the narrative of human redemption. 
John's proclamation is not only a beacon of truth, but it's a potent reminder that the rejection of Christ is a conscious denial of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. It leaves Israel without excuse before the Almighty. To have heard John the Baptist and to still deny Christ, it leaves Israel and, and any who heard John without the ability to plead ignorant on, on, on that final judgment day. Now, that's all well and good, you might be thinking, but why didn't Jesus just give a direct answer to the question? Why didn't he simply say, my authority comes from heaven and be done with it? That would seem like a pretty you know, definitive uh, answer. We readers, we, we see this connection that Luke's doing and we can think, oh, that's, that's, that's nice, Luke, that you're bringing in those themes from earlier. Um, but that's missing the point. The, the, and, and that brings us to the next theme, the rightful reign of Jesus as Messiah. So thinking of John's baptism, therefore his entire ministry, bringing that into the disputation, it makes an important messianic point. Jesus is doing this on purpose. It's not just a cute narrative device. This is done with reason. John's baptism of repentance fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, which foretold the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. John knew exactly what his role was. One is coming who is mightier than I, he says in Luke 3. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. If John had the authority from God to say those things, and we know that the word of God came directly to him, then he must have been on to something. The Messiah actually was coming. But if John does not have the authority necessary for his ministry, then he was a heretic and blasphemer. So pair this fact alongside the messages that Jesus has been preaching about uh, and teaching about himself, the deeds that have gone along with those messages, and um, including casting out people from the temple just days prior to this, maybe the day exactly before this. And the picture begins to come into focus. This person that John's baptism was pointing towards, that was announcing the coming of the Messiah, and this teacher who is saying things that sound an awful lot like he's saying he's the Messiah, it's kind of sounding like he's coming out and saying it without saying it. And, and, and this is huge. I, I mean, other than just coming out and saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, this is as close as you could get to shouting it. The serpent crusher that God promised to Eve, the one who was promised to David that would establish eternal, an eternal throne, he's come, and he's standing right here. This deep connection between Jesus and John the Baptist, especially Jesus' uh, recognition and commendation of it, of John's ministry, as a means of attesting to his messiahship, it should be encouraging to us, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it should lead us to realize that all of Scripture is important. Christ and his ministry, they do not exist in an ahistorical vacuum. It's not just some nice tale that should inspire us to live more loving lives in the modern, uh, in the modern day. All of history has been orchestrated by God. Redemption plays itself out on the stage of history. 
along a precise timeline created by God himself. So John the Baptist and Jesus and you all exist on this timeline. We cannot be red-letter Christians thinking that the words of Christ are the only ones that matter in our Bibles and everything else is just padding. Every single line is the word of God. It's a direct phone line to us today. All of Scripture relates to each other through Christ. All of it informs us of who He is, what He came to do, and what He actually accomplished in history at a real physical point in time. All of history has been leading to this. Okay, so we have, we have this fact that Jesus is saying that John has served this Old Testament prophetic point and what that says about Jesus is huge. And so um, with all that on the table, that brings us to the response of the temple officials. Our last theme. Again, I'll read verses 5 through 7. And they, they being the chief priests, scribes, and elders, discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. I, I can't help but uh, picture this scene when I read this section. We have Jesus teaching in the temple, and off to the side there's some brooding, unamused, well-respected religious figures. They eventually have enough, and they come up to demand to know who gives Jesus the right to do these things that he has been doing the past few days in the temple. Jesus responds coolly to these brooding figures, and then they have to pause and huddle up to figure out their best course of action. Perhaps a few moments go by, they break their huddle, they come back up to Jesus, and then they just say, I don't know. Now, we know the content of their huddle discussion because Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to provide an account of their attempt to provide an answer. But, you know, just to have been a fly on the wall at that scene would have been incredible. The image of such a well-respected, highly intelligent guys who were very conversant with the law of God being reduced to speechless fools by one question uh, and in the end we just see that they're politicking it's just extremely evident and it is exactly this politicking that is their downfall they look for self-preservation before they look for the truth the portrait painted of Politics and public relations adds to the narrative picture of how subtly sin works. These men are not interested in the truth. They, like the first sinner Adam, have turned in on themselves. They see the self as more important than the truth of God. Look at how they weigh their responses. If we say this, then that will happen. But if we say that, then this will happen. This isn't something that you say when you're interested in, in answering a straightforward question with a straightforward, truthful answer. Or, or even attempting to get to the bottom of the truth. 
this is not how you respond to this situation. Either Jesus has his authority from heaven, he has a divinely appointed forerunner whose entire purchase was to vouch, purpose was to vouch for him, or he's a damnable heretic who must be denounced before all men. Those are the two choices. It's a, it's a black and white, case open, case closed type of issue. The, the boldness of Jesus' teaching and, and John before him, it demands that you either embrace him as Savior and Lord or you oppose him. There has been uh, this interesting response of neutrality in our culture to Jesus. Uh, maybe it's not as much anymore, but uh, especially when I was a kid, it seemed like when postmodernism was the, the big social in vogue thing. Uh, maybe it's also a bigger thing in the South than up here. I don't know. I haven't done the polling. But um, people are, are quick to say, well, I, I don't think Jesus was, you know, like the son of God or anything, but he had some pretty cool teachings. Uh, they have this sort of uh, benign respect for parts of what he said, notably when they take those things that he said out of context. Yeah, I do think that we should love our neighbors, you know, something they would say. People don't want to embrace him, but they don't really want to cast him out of Western culture completely either. That sort of response is not actually a possible category for, uh, that the Bible leaves open. There's no middle ground in play. You're, you're on board or you're in opposition. And rightly so. I mean, the claims that Jesus makes are extremely dangerous if he is not who he says he is. There's a famous aphorism by C.S. Lewis that I'm sure most of you are aware of. It goes like this, that uh, there are three things that Jesus can be, a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Those are the only three types of people who could make the claim, uh, the, the types of claims that Jesus made, that he had the authority to forgive sins, that he uh, always existed, that he uh, intends to rise from the dead and judge the world at the end of time. These are the things that, the sorts of things that if you had a friend say these to you, I, I would hope that you would scorn them for blasphemy. You cannot politic your way around a proper response to that. And yet... Here we have the temple officials, the, the men who operate the most important roles in the religious life of Israel. They're all calculating how best to answer the question so that they end up looking good. Rather than just saying what they think is true or at least attempting to get to the bottom of it. The, uh, the, the calculations that they're making, that's the sort of calculation you make when someone you respect asks if you like Taylor Swift or not. It's not the, the dialogue that you have when a person claiming to be one with the Father is standing in front of you. But here's the thing. Uh, we can say, you know, this is, this is what those, those crazy non-Christians who can't commit, this is, this is what they do, but... How often is the response of these temple officials the same response that we have with people in our lives? 
how many times has someone at work asked you what you did over the weekend and you have to think, you know, do I include mentioning that I went to church? How many times has a friend made a joke about the faith that you really shouldn't have let slide, but you let it slide anyway? Or, or how many times you hesitate to speak up for your association with the ruler of the universe because, you know, probably isn't the most popular thing to say in this particular setting. Uh, I, I know that I'm guilty of this more frequently than, frankly, I care to admit. But Jesus urges us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Honestly declare where you stand and why. And don't let the truth be stifled by a concern for how others might view you. As we, yes, navigate the landscapes of cultural responses to Jesus, it becomes clear that neutrality is a luxury that the scriptures do not afford, but they don't afford us that luxury either. So the prevalent cultural tendency to view Jesus as a mere moral teacher divorced from his divine claims, it stands in stark contrast to the uncompromising declarations found in the Gospels. And yet, we, we make those same, uh, those same mistakes. We're confronted with the necessity of choosing a stance. Either you embrace Jesus as the Son of God, the very embodiment of truth, or you reject him outright. Jesus urges you to transcend the fear of societal disapproval and to let our words and actions resound with authenticity. He's given his spirit, thankfully, to be a guide and a comforter for exactly these sorts of occasions. In doing this, we align ourselves with the unequivocal truth of the gospel. We reject the allure of cultural conformity for the sake of unwavering fidelity to our Lord and Savior. May our lives bear witness to the radical commitment demanded by Christ's Lordship, a Lordship that is woven into the fabric of history. It's planned from the foundations of the earth. It echoes through the corridors of our daily existence, and it affirms the profound reality that in Him we have life, and we have life because He has authority over all things. Let us pray. Gracious Father, you are a great God and a great King above all gods. In your hands are all the corners of the earth, and the strength of the hills is yours also. Only you have authority, and we ask that you would enable us to boldly proclaim your name, that we might boldly stand for your truth. Be with us as we go into the world, into a world that opposes you. Strengthen us to cling to your truth, for apart from it, we can do nothing. We pray this through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, be all glory and honor. Amen.